Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 93 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Ryan North creator of the popular webcomic Dinosaur Comics, which has run for over 2,000 issues using the exact same art and panel layout for each strip. A Kickstarter he launched for his book To Be or Not to Be, a choose-your-own-adventure-style version of Hamlet, raised well over half a million dollars, making it the most successful publishing-related Kickstarter ever. He also co-edited the short story anthology Machine of Death, which hit number one on Amazon.com the day of its release. A sequel, This Is How You Die, is out now. Then stick around after the interview for a panel discussion on choose-your-own-adventure books. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Ryan North. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right, so you have a lot of projects you've been doing, but it all started with your web series Dinosaur Comics. So you want to tell us about that? Uh, yeah, that that's a, a comic where it's the same pictures all the time, and I change the words, and it's better than it sounds, what I always <laughs> say. And uh, that came out of me wanting to do a comic and, you know, not being able to draw. And so I had this brilliant idea for a comic where it would be the same story every time with different pictures. And, you know, that's the exact wrong project for me to be doing because <laughs> I can't draw. And I thought, well, maybe if I flip this and have the same pictures and different story would work. And uh, 10 years later, I guess it did. I can at least keep remixing it, keep doing my own sequels. Uh-huh. Well, so how did you put together that very first comic like where did the art come from and what was your thought process behind it no oh, there was no thought process. <laughs> you look if you look at the layout for dinosaur comics uh you've got t-rex in the top three two panels a close-up and then the last four panels the characters are standing on the panel boundaries which is super <laughs> amateur hour comic stuff but i didn't know any better i also thought dinosaurs were like 15 stories tall which is why they appear that tall in the comic so there's a lot of mistakes that i made you know a decade ago that i'm now committed to but it was fun, and I think it was the luckiest thing I ever did was coming up, hitting on this layout that was as flexible and as versatile as it is, able to to tell different stories using these same pictures. So what was your background uh, as a creator before Dinosaur Comics? Was that just the first thing that you had ever tried to create, or, or <laughs> had you done other stuff before? That uh, Like, what was oh, your background? Yeah. Um, there's a bunch of old stuff for me online. I used to have a page that was called Ryan's Page of Fun and Robot Erotica. And all that was all that was on it was this one picture of these two robots holding hands. <laughs> I found an undergrad. It was we got free uni- free web space with university, and I had no use for it. So I just put up my page of fun and robot erotica, and I updated that once every semester with new robot erotica, <laughs> uh, basically all through undergrad, like an ASCII art version. Then I found there's a Bjork video where she's sort of robotic, and there's two lesbian robots kissing, which was a huge update for Ryan's page of fun and robot erotica when that came out. But yeah, there there was a bunch of smaller stuff. Um, Dynamics, the first project I did that was meant to be an ongoing basis, was meant to continue on an ongoing basis. And I mean, originally I thought I would use these dinosaurs for a month, and then next month there'd be new arts, and I would change the art every month. And then when I finished the first month, I was like, man, making this new art's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> what if I didn't do that? And then I just kept with the art. Which is kind of a, a theme in my life, because when I, when I graduated school, I had the choice between getting a job or doing the comics, and I was like, man, 
I just have to not get a job. <laughs> I could be a full-time cartoonist. Uh, so Dinosaur Comics has always been free to read online, but you made money selling T-shirts. Uh, you you want to talk about that business model a little bit? Uh, yeah, I, I can tell you that uh, when I started this, when I graduated school, I just finished this grad degree in computational linguistics. And I was like, hey, mom and dad, I'm going to do this comic and it's going to pay for rent. And the way it's going to work is you'll read the comic for free and you can buy a shirt if you want to. And my parents were not too enthused with that business model. And they said things like, you're wasting your education and things along those lines, which is what parents say. And I'm glad they did because I love and respect them. Uh, but really, uh, it worked because the model is that you have tons of people reading your comic and you hope that a percent of a percent will like enough to buy a merchandise, buy some merchandise, buy a book, buy a t-shirt. And when I first started, I remember thinking like every day, I need three people to buy a shirt today so that I can pay rent and eat food. And it would happen. And I would try to imagine these these three presumably topless people being like, yes, today's the day <laughs> I buy a shirt. Um, so it was, it was sort of like walking a tightrope that I couldn't control. But then you start putting faith in laws of averages and seeing that this is, is working and has worked. And you have faith that if you continue putting out work that people like, they'll eventually want to own and share part of that. I mean, what do the t-shirts actually look like and what have been the most popular designs and stuff like that? Uh, one was a time traveler cheat sheet. There's this, there's this rule of thumb in shirt design and graphic design in general saying that you don't put too many words on it. And this is a shirt that had, I don't even know the word count, probably like 2,000 words. <laughs> Basically all the low-hanging fruit of history. Here's how you can build a compass. Here's where you can find aluminum. All this stuff that you would like to know if you were sent back in time and needed to reinvent civilization or at least make yourself a god in the past. I guess the problem with a time traveler t-shirt, though, is that you know 80% of the time when you travel through time, you end up naked. So like, do you sell time traveler cheat sheet tattoos or, like, or something? I just have questions about the way you travel through time. <laughs> a lot of us don't end up naked. <laughs> Oh Actually, no, circumstances made me naked again. <laughs> Actually, I think the bigger issue might be that in most periods of history, a t-shirt would not actually pass as period wear. That's true, but I also have a uh, poster version you can hang up in your time machine that solves that. Ah. But you should have a time traveler cheat sheet frock coat or something, you know, depending <laughs> on... I mean, people say that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, Dinosaur Comics has become quite popular over the years, uh, but how long did it take for that to happen? And, and like, what were some of the first signs that you saw the comic was really starting to take off? Yeah, I can remember the first time uh, someone bought merchandise from me. And it, was, it was stickers I made myself. And it was a woman who had two kids, and she bought them for her kids, it turned out. And I emailed her saying, oh my god, I'm so excited about these, button, or these, these stickers, and here's an envelope basically stuffed with stickers. <laughs> you order two, here's 200. <laughs> And she was like, yeah, they're for my kids. I like your comic. Uh, but before then, I, I basically put the comic up in 2003. And I mean, this was 2003. So there's no such thing as social networks or really anything. I just put it up and said that now it's online. Now we play the waiting game. Wait for the internet to discover it and tell me how great I am. When I started the comic in 2003, and when I graduated in 2006, it was around early 2006, I started seriously considering this being something I could do for real. Like, there's there's a readership here. I'm getting emails from people I don't know. Do you have any idea how many people, how many, I heard you say in an interview you have something like 70,000 people read the comic. Is that, uh, has it grown since then? Or is that about what it is? 
Yeah, that's about what it is. I used to um I used to keep that number in mind and I would go to like a sports game and they'd say, Oh, the attendance today is seventy thousand people and I'd be like, each one of these is a reader, this is how big my audience is which is sort of sort of super egotistical, but it was nice to sort of see that many people in a room and think I am privileged enough to get to talk to these people once a day. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. I mean, I, it's not the same 70,000 people drop in and drop out and archive binge and never read it again, but it's nice to think about. I don't know if you ever, there's a comic called uh, Too Much Coffee Man. And oh, yes. I don't know if you saw the one where he, there's a cartoonist in it and somebody asks him what his fantasy is. And he's like, my fantasy is to be drawing my comic in a stadium and, you know, with my, with what I'm drawing up on the big screen. And every time I draw a particularly good line, the whole crowd just cheers and. So it could be sort of like sort of like that. Yeah, uh, I would hate that. My, <laughs> no, the reason is is that um, it's funny. I, I said I told this story in an interview years ago, and what I said was, "I'm I don't find writing to be too difficult because what I'm doing is I'm sitting alone in the room trying to effectively make myself laugh, write something that I think is funny, and literally induce laughter in myself." Which is super embarrassing for anyone to watch because it looks, you are literally laughing at your own jokes. <laughs> and I ended by saying, yeah, I'm basically just writing for anyone who shares my sense of humor. And when that reached press, it was, it became, I'm writing for anyone who has my sense of humor or has a sense of humor, <laughs> which is way more egotistical and uh, kind of amazing. The other thing that, uh, along similar lines, they were like, oh, where do you get your ideas? And I said, I have this giant text file of, you know, snippets of dialogue or things I'd like to explore, prompts, stuff that can that can help me if I'm hitting a wall. And I'll use that. I'll stare at this text file and I'll sort of come up with something. And <laughs> this went through editorial and like it reached physical print and it became, uh, I have this giant text tile, like a rug on the wall that I would stare at and it would give me ideas for comics. And I love that image so much that that's now the new official history that I get my <laughs> ideas from this textile that I keep around and update once in a while. Hmm. Uh, well, I mean, one of the ideas that you got was the idea for Machine of Death. And uh, you want to just tell us how dinosaur comics uh, led to that? Yeah, it was a comic where T-Rex uh, proposed an idea, as as is his want. And he was saying, what if there's a machine that could tell you how you would die? Not Not when, but how. And... This how, if you got something like old age, that could mean you die alone, surrounded by loved ones, or it could mean that you get run over by an old man, or there's an octogenarian sniper who takes you out. Sort of that mm. that old world sense of irony around predictions was baked into the premise. And I put the comic up, and we had a forum, and people in the forum were saying, hey, that's a good idea. We should uh, put together a book. And I was like, yeah, we should, probably should. Anyway, I'm busy. <laughs> Talk to you later. And then uh, David and Matt came to me and were like, you know, we really should do this. And I was like, oh, uh, David Malky, Matt Bernardo, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> this is serious now. And so we put the book together and spent several years trying to get a publisher to publish it, and no one wanted to. Then we published it ourselves, and it became the number one best-selling book on Amazon that day, which was really cool and exciting. And then publishers emailed us saying, hey, can we publish this book? And we were like, where were you five years ago? <laughs> it, was, it was a good story, and it sort of uh, showed the value of indie publishing and doing things when everyone says they're a bad idea. I mean, people would say, this will never work. They'd say, we love the book, but it'll never sell because A, it's an anthology, B, there's no big name authors, and C, it's genre fiction, science fiction. And those are three strikes. But 
they don't have to be. Like you can you can have a good idea that everyone thinks is dumb, and it can still it's still a good idea. <laughs> so, how did you guys get the book into the top spot on Amazon? We just told people to buy it. It was that simple. We said we've been working on this book, and now it's out. Go buy it. And uh, we had it helped that we've been working this book for years. There were some people who had been waiting for it for a long time, but it sort of snowballed, and we got uh, an email from Amazon saying, "We don't know what you're doing, but keep it up," <laughs> which is great. Like it was a really uh, amazing day and totally unexpected. Well, I think one thing that you did that was really clever is it's an anthology of about 30 stories, and then each of them is illustrated by a prominent uh, webcomic artist. So that's 60-odd people, all of whom have friends and Twitter followers, uh, many of them lots of uh, followers because they're comic book artists, all you know pushing the book, uh, all having a stake in the success of this book. Yeah, you make it sound uh, like we are really smart business people, <laughs> but we just sort of, let's put a book together and let's put it online. There is no... Uh... We don't. I wish I could take credit for all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did you know that uh, publishers were going to want uh, recognizable name authors in the book, or were you so like unfamiliar with publishing that that just you know hadn't occurred to you? Oh, completely unfamiliar. I mean, sort of this naive view that if you make an awesome book, they clearly want to publish it because it's an awesome book. But the, obviously, they have business concerns. We were so naive about publishing that we just picked a day for the book to come out on Amazon. And we're like, hey, everyone bought them this day. And it turns out the day we picked was actually the day that it was a Tuesday, I think, where publishers, publishing companies normally drop their new books. So it was, in fact, the day of the most competition for sales. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, we don't know anything. We're just a couple of dudes with a book we made. Uh -huh. Well, what would be the best day? I don't know. Um, I guess if you could mobilize people like a Sunday night. No one, no one else is trying to sell books mm -hmm. on a Sunday night. Uh, yeah, and, and so uh, one of the people you pushed out of the top spot on Amazon.com famously was Glenn Beck. Yeah, he got real mad. <laughs> he called this out in his radio show, said we're part of a liberal culture of death. We actually sent uh, his production company two copies of the book, and inside the book we'd put in little fake machine of death prediction slips that said paper cut. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think he ever read it. But yeah, it was it was bizarre. We just We just finished this amazing day. And then we started getting messages saying, dudes, Glenn Beck just called you out. You have a celebrity beef now, <laughs> which is, you know, completely surprising and bizarre. So have you, uh, have you taken any shots back at him? Like, do you have anything you want to say to Glenn Beck on the air right now? <laughs> no, it's, does he still have a show? Like, I feel bad for him. I feel like he kind of imploded. No, he has his own like network now. It's called The Blaze. I was just in the office, actually. It's a weird story, but. Oh, well, I mean, I, I wish him well. Sorry, his book didn't <laughs> number one. <laughs> so, I mean, do you consider yourself part of a liberal culture of death? I mean, if I am, <laughs> I haven't met any other members of it. <laughs> Although, I, you could actually make that argument because uh, you have Machina Death, you have the sequel, This Is How You Die, which spokes around death. You have uh, To Be or Not To Be, which Hamlet has a lot of death in it. So, I could probably write an essay arguing that for him but i think there's some flaws in that hypothesis that are pretty evident also, i also don't know what a liberal culture of death is like to just celebrate death it's a very short-lived culture <laughs> uh i mean have you thought about maybe doing a book called machine of life or machine of love <laughs> machine of love or something to kind of yeah we actually did consider that for a sequel like a new premise but 
Um, the issue with those ideas is that they weren't as interesting and they didn't seem to be as fun and as flexible. Uh, a machine that tells you who you're going to fall in love with maybe prints out a list of names. Uh, cool idea for a short story. Probably can't be sustained for a series of short stories because the only conflict there is, oh, I love you, but apparently going to fall in love with someone else at some point in the future. Mm. So how do I deal with that? But I'm not sure you have 30 stories in the same theme. So you, you mentioned the sequel, uh, This Is How You Die. You want to just tell us about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, it's See, this is a weird thing for you to say, but I, I sincerely believe it's a better book than Machine of Death. I mean, normally, I guess people say it all the time, like, it's latest and greatest. But what we have with This Is How You Die are 30 more stories with the premise of there's a machine that tells you how you're going to die, a machine of death. But it goes in so many more different directions. There's a, a choose-your-adventure story, style story. There's uh, one with, like high fantasy with orcs and stuff there's real life emotional sort of realist narratives in it it's it's a much more varied and deep and impressive book i think and it the nice thing about being an editor for a book like this is that you can talk up the book as much as you want because you're not praising yourself if i had written the book and said yes this is a very deep and engaging <laughs> book that's super egotistical but i didn't write i only wrote one story in it i didn't write all the stories and uh they're really good well, you got something like 2,000 submissions, right? Yeah, 1970-something, I think. Almost 2,000 from every continent except Antarctica, <laughs> which was bad. <laughs> so what's their problem? Why didn't the Antarcticans uh, get into this? <laughs> I think they were busy doing literal scientific research. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, maybe next time. Well, I mean, I, I, I really, I read the first uh, maybe seven or eight time, uh, stories in the book I had time to read. I really, really enjoyed uh, the ones I read. And it, do, it did seem that, yeah, that, I mean, people kind of get the, get the moves of a machine of death story now. It's just about coming up with the craziest uh, elaboration of the idea. Um, so, for example, there's the, the sort of the space marine story where the military has a, well, maybe, do you want to talk about it? Well, I'm. I'd love to hear your summarization. <laughs> All right. Well, so 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 the military has a sort of more advanced algorithm kind of machine of death that'll tell you, uh, you know, the the normal machine of death. You don't know when you're going to die, but this machine will tell you uh, the date that you're certain to live to and the cert the date that you're certain to die by. And then between those two, there's kind of a probability curve, and you know that you'll die somewhere in that range. And what the, what the sort of uh, steepness of the curve is. Yeah, and like that's a really cool idea. And there's there's a part where um, they have different squads based on death predictions. And one of the lines is you can't shoot the cancer squad because they'll survive. And so if you have these elite military units, all who have like Alzheimer's, that guy is going to be really hard to take down. So there's this. We told the authors when we were soliciting stories, saying we said, you know, read the first book if you want, and assume that everyone who has read will be reading a story has read the first book. So let's go somewhere new with it and see where that takes us, which is fun. Like it's, it's nice to have that sort of depth of exploration, especially when it's all coming from this idea that I threw off in a talking dinosaur. In 2005. <laughs> like it's <laughs> very fruitful comic. And it's also, I love it that this is an idea proposed by a fictional dinosaur, that, dinosaur that has bled into our own reality. Hmm. And so, you know, your story in the book is called cancer and uh, actually ran it in a light speed, uh, you know, sort of, promotion for the book but uh, it so certainly people... did <laughs> and so uh, people can go read that now if they want but uh, you want to just tell people what it's about yeah um cancer is about these uh two women who uh one of them gets helen gets a, a prediction 
at birth saying cancer. And then as she grows up, she eventually gets retested just as a matter of course and gets a different prediction and starts getting more and more different predictions, which should be impossible because the machine is always consistent. You always get the same prediction no matter where you go. And the story is sort of exploring um, how is this possible? What does this mean? And also the relationship she has with her partner about, you know, how do we face cancer? How do we face certain death? That sort of stuff. Or not even certain death, uncertain death, possible death. Uh, cool. And then you also you mentioned choose your own adventure style stories. I think it's it's important to specify that these are choose your own adventure style stories for uh, <laughs> trademark yeah, reasons. Yeah, they, they have a trademark, and I don't want to get in trouble. Um, <laughs> but so yeah, so you have the you want to tell us about uh, to be or not to be. Yeah, that is a book I wrote. Um, that's the idea is you take Hamlet and you make it into a choose your own adventure style book, and when you do this, you give you you give the reader. Uh, three playable characters to choose from, Hamlet or Ophelia, or Hamlet's dad, King Hamlet. If you choose him, you die on the first page and have to play as a ghost. <laughs> and you do uh, cool things with the story. So instead of a play within a play, what if there was a choose-your-adventure book within a choose-your-adventure-style book? Nesting things like that. And really just um, have fun with the potential of the medium. Um, and the whole, the whole book came to me with the title. I thought, oh, to be or not to be, that's sort of like a choice. Almost like those choose your own, oh my god, I have to write this. Like That was, that was <laughs> my process. So it was, it was a lot of fun, and I uh, launched it on Kickstarter, and it did really well. But so uh, so how much better do you think this is than the original Hamlet? Like, what are some of the, <laughs> what are some of the major, major improvements that you've made to the story? Uh, I will delicately answer this question by saying that the original Hamlet is contained within my book. You can follow little York skulls to get the choices that Shakespeare made. And... I think it takes a special sort of person to claim that he has improved or fixed Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not sure I'm there. But what I did was I tried to fix, change things in the story that I remembered being better than they were. I remembered Ophelia as being this really awesome character. Like, I loved Ophelia. She was so cool. She was the coolest lady. And then when I reread the book, I was like, she's not cool. She like, gets used by people and then dies. Like, it, was, it was so disappointing. And so my book, I tried to make her as uh, awesome as I remembered her being, which is my, my fix for Shakespeare. And also, you're dealing with a, a play that's written hundreds of years ago, and so obviously there's going to be some social mores that are inconsistent with our modern enlightened time, and you can have fun playing with those or bouncing off of them. Well, but and then your book has an actual pirate battle, right? I mean, I think that's important. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, I forgot about that pirate battle until I got to that part in Hamlet's story, and I was rereading the book just to check on stuff. And Hamlet shows up, and he's like, oh, yeah, no, I was banished, but um, we met the pirates, and they took me captive and uh, brought me back for no reason, then left. And here <laughs> I play, let's get back to the business of the play. And all the characters are like, yeah, sure, no problems. We accept this. And it's, it's so bizarre from a modern perspective because we're used to movies showing us all the spectacle they can like we see every possible explosion in a story and shakespeare has this off-screen pirate battle that just gets dismissed in one line so I, I made a big production of it where there's this climactic battle on a pirate ship and you're fighting the captain pirate the head pirate and it's a lot of fun it was nice to to be surprised i'm doing this shakespeare story and then i get to have this pirate battle and it's totally justified because shakespeare put it in there too off screen, or I guess off stage. Well, um, so how hard is it to write a choose your own adventure style story? Like, do you have all, have all, all sorts of uh, graphs and stuff like that? See, I thought it would be harder, but I'd never written a novel before. And part of the reason that was I hadn't was that I was worried about 
getting 50,000 words into a book and realizing I made a mistake on word three. That would mean throwing everything out. out. Hmm. Uh, but in a choose-your-adventure-style narrative, a nonlinear uh, narrative, you can explore different options. And as they pan out or fail to pan out, you can extend them or shorten them. And if you have a path that goes you know, five or six choices and then you feel like it's done, that's not a problem. <laughs> you have a nice little mini-adventure there, and then you can move on to something else. So in terms of creative process, I found it really nice. It was also really nice that I could you know, work on Ophelia's story, and if I'm getting stuck with that, I could switch to something, whatever Hamlet was up to. So it was um, very empowering, ironically, for a guy who doesn't like to make choices. <laughs> it made made that very fun to write. I mean, did you have a did you have a graph or a software or anything that you used, or did you just write it sort of page by page? Or oh no, I use software. There's I talked to uh, this guy who had dinner with R.L. Stein, who wrote the Goosebumps series of books and the Give Yourself Goosebumps, which are choose your adventure style books. And uh, apparently, he used pieces of paper with thread between them, like conspiracy theory hmm. style, just giant wall covered with paper and thread, which is a hot mess, I would think, <laughs> <laughs> especially when you're changing things. So I use some software that basically just let me put boxes, words in boxes, and draw lines between the boxes, and that lets me see the state of the story. And with that, I can keep track of what's going on and where the choices are bringing you and what the decision tree looks like and stuff like that, which is really important because you don't want to get lost in your own book. I thought it was interesting, actually, that uh, to, to read the book in ebook format, be, just because it's, that format seems so ideal for this kind of thing, because if every time you make a choice, you can actually just click a hyperlink and it takes you right to it. And if you want to go back, it's very easy to go back, as opposed to in the old days where, you know, you had to actually turn pages. And like, if you wanted to go back, it's like you'd have to remember what page you were on before you actually turned to the to the choice you made. And so it made it much more difficult to actually play through the book. Yeah, it, uh, I put a lot of work in the ebook because I wanted it to be something that felt at home in the format and not uh, just a quick quick conversion and getting the back button structuring the book such that the back button unwound your choices was really really nice because like mm -hmm. you say you can if you die you're like okay back make the choice oh die again i'll go back twice make the other choice which uh technically allows an efficient depth first search of any tree <laughs> <laughs> so when you do that know that you are taking a computational approach to the book that is valid so, I mean, were you always a big fan of choose-your-own-adventure books, and did you go back and study any of the old ones or anything like that? And I, I read them when I was a kid, and I, I love them because you go to the library and you can have a choice between a book with one story in it where you don't get to make any choices, a.k.a. a baby book, or a choose-your-adventure book where you had tons of choices and you were deciding what would happen. And so that was it's that sense of fun and possibility that I wanted to capture. And there are things that I wanted to do differently. I remember in the books I read as a kid, um, you realize when you're writing a book like this that one of your enemies is that this decision tree, every choice you make has this combinatorial explosion to more choices. And so you need to trim that tree. Otherwise, you'll never get any more of the story. And in the books I read as a child, that tree would get trimmed by saying, you know, go left or go right. If you go left, the Earth explodes. If you go right, you know, Mars attacks and aliens invade. And... The effects of my choices were so far beyond what the actual choices were that it felt like the choices were kind of meaningless. Like when you're living in such a capricious universe, um, why, why make any choices at all when you can't predict their outcomes? So I wanted my choices in my book to feel bounded in reality. And I also want to have things that would happen regardless of your choices. If an earthquake is going to happen at 3 p.m. tomorrow, no matter what you do today, that earthquake is still going to happen. So I wanted to have 
the reader feel like their choices had meaning, and part of the way they have meaning is by having them have reasonable consequences. Uh, so you mentioned that you launched this book on Kickstarter, and uh, you said it was very successful, although it was actually the most successful publishing Kickstarter ever. Uh, so uh, <laughs> you, you want to just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it went really well. <laughs> um, we uh, asked for 20K to get the book out, and we got that in three and a half hours. And then we broke 100K in the first day, and by the end we had broken $580,000, uh, which was way more than I was expecting. And I had made some wild promises, like, if we reach half a million dollars, I will literally explode, thinking, <laughs> we're not going to do that. And then we did, and I had to literally explode. So I went to the Oxford English Dictionary, and it turns out explode can be transitive. <laughs> <laughs> it takes an object. So what we did was I literally exploded something. We uh, 3D scanned my head, made a 3D printer version of it, mm. uh, turned that into a bomb, <laughs> and blew that up in an alleyway. So do you have any idea about how many of the backers were fans of yours already and how many of them had never heard of you, but they just like the idea and stuff like that? Yeah. Um, Kickstarter actually gives you a report saying, here's where people are coming from when they find your project. And a full, I think it was over quarter, over 25% of people were people who had come directly from Kickstarter itself. So these are people who didn't know me, didn't know any of the artists, didn't know the project, just happened across it and said, oh, that looks cool. I mean, did... Did like uh, Miley Cyrus retweet you or something? Like, how did it how did it get so huge? Uh, did it? I mean, did it get picked up by major, uh, news outlets or anything? Or like, just how did how did it get so big? Um, I don't know. There was there was coverage in the Guardian, and that was on the CBC, which is awesome, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Um, there was some some media coverage of it for sure, but it's hard to tell what what the greatest effects were. I don't, I'm, I've never listened to a thing on the radio and said, Oh, I got to get to my computer right away <laughs> to back this on Kickstarter. <laughs> but I think it all helps obviously. And I wish I had a formula that's like, here's the buttons you have to press to have a really successful Kickstarter project. <laughs> I think a lot of it comes down to luck and a lot of it comes down to uh, the strength of the idea, but there's always luck on top of that. And it helped that I have 10 years of producing work behind me so that I'm not just some random guy saying I got a great proposal I just need your money it'll be fantastic hmm. I'm a guy saying hey we've had this relationship for years here's a new thing I'm doing maybe you want to check it out uh, and so have you gotten any feedback on the book from actual Shakespeare scholars um, yeah I've, and I guess not Shakespeare scholars I've had Shakespeare enthusiasts you're all very happy about it I thought there might be some some blowback like how dare you do this to Shakespeare? Mm -hmm. But people, I think, recognize that the original Hamlet book still exists. Like, I'm not, it wasn't a Kickstarter to destroy Hamlet and replace it with the beer. <laughs> <laughs> so people are, are excited. They see it as a way to experience the book in a different, different format. Um, the fact that the original story is contained within it, I think, is great. It sort of reassures people that, you know, it's still there. <laughs> Okay, and then for the prequel, Poor York, I mean, there's not that much about York in the play, right? So did you just have to make up pretty much everything for that one? Oh, there, there's one paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> there's just one paragraph about York, which is, um, I wish I had it memorized. I could recite some Shakespeare to you. But it's that fellow infinite jest, uh, noble. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he hath bore me on his back a thousand times. Where are your gambles now? That sort of stuff. So basically, I... Um, took that as the premise and you start out as York who is poor, like physically poor, he has no money and he gets his job to entertain the King's kid, Kid Hamlet. And 
unlike most choose your own adventure books where the goal is to survive and all these alternate paths you die in poor york your destiny is to die so that hamlet can hold up your skull 30 years in the future hmm. contemplate his own mortality and so in poor york your goal is to die and there's only one path in which you survive and that's the bad ending <laughs> so it was fun to invert that sort of dominant paradigm for non-linear second-person narratives and play with it a bit. All right, cool. And then you've also been working on comics based on the Adventure Time TV show on Cartoon Network. Uh, so how did you get involved with that? I wish I had a better story. They emailed me and said, hey, do you want to write this comic? And I said, yes. <laughs> Let's do this. Uh, you want to say just what are some of the storylines of some of the comics that you came up, that you came up with? Uh, yeah, there is the first arcs with the witch, who's like the big bad guy in the show. And the second arc, uh, they go to the future where everything's messed up and uh, interact with Queen Bubblegum instead of Princess Bubblegum, and it's, it's lots of fun. The third arc has Bimo getting a virus, which is suboptimal for poor Bimo. And we're just starting the, uh, or the fourth arc has a dungeon crawl with Ice King, and we're just starting the fifth arc now. So what sort of response have you gotten from Adventure Time fans? Uh, has anyone been like, hey, man, you don't know Finn and Jake, man? Um, the, the first issue was reviewed really well, and so I started trying to seek out negative reviews. <laughs> <laughs> and the worst I found was a guy who hated the comic, but he hated it because he couldn't hear the voices, and they were static pictures, and all these other properties that are intrinsic to comics as a medium. So he rejected the very idea of an Adventure Time comic. And I was fine with that. I was like, dude, if you hate the very idea of a comic, then you're not going to like this when it's a comic. And that's fine. There's no way I can win you over. But yeah, it's been super enthusiastic. People like it. I've had people email me saying they've gotten into the show because of the comic, which is super flattering. So yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been great. And you've also been working on a, a Galaga comic uh, based on the 80s coin-op arcade. Uh, what's, what's that been like? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's... Um, they came to me and said, do you want to write a Galaga comic? And so I was like, does Galaga have a story? I don't remember Galaga having a story. So I look up Galaga, and there's no story. It's just you're shooting space bugs. <laughs> but that gave me free range to do whatever I wanted. So I invented this narrative about these space bugs coming, and there's these uh, two women on Earth who are trying to protect them. And their ship is basically built out of giant pixels. So the ship looks like it does in the game. There's all these cute little tie-ins to the actual game. I mean, is there a huge Galaga fan constituency that's been waiting for more Galaga stuff since, like, 1982 <laughs> or whatever? I don't know. Um, if they have, haven't contacted me, but what I have seen is people saying, you know, oh my god, this Galaga comic is way better than it has any right to be. <laughs> All right, cool. And then in other news, how have things been going with the Every Topic in the Universe Except Chickens project? <laughs> going well. Uh, the, the, the idea there was sort of this modest proposal that Wikipedia has a problem with vandalism, and so why don't we just give up one article to the vandals, the chickens article, because dudes already know about chickens, and <laughs> the rest of Wikipedia will be totally safe and totally fine. Um, and what happened with that was that people started to vandalize the chicken article, so I should have foreseen. And it remains semi-protected to this day, which I probably should have foreseen. <laughs> um, I ended up linking the comic to a previously vandalized version of the article so people could just you know, look at it and not have to vandalize themselves. So Wikipedia is a tremendous resource and does terrific work. And I don't want to be like this guy who's just messing with Wikipedia all the time. 
So I feel a little bit bad about it, but you know, it could be part of the solution. <laughs> uh, actually, in your Wikipedia entry here, there's a couple of things I just really wanted to ask you about. So it says, uh, many other individuals hold the name Ryan North, and Ryan North, the webcomic author, sarcastically tried to stop those other people from using his name in a series of satirical emails. Uh, what's the story with that? So that adjective sarcastically, I think, shouldn't be there. It's been there for years. I don't know who put it there. But what I did was I emailed other people named Ryan North. This was years ago in undergrad, one of my early internet projects. I emailed them saying, hey, guys, I'm, I'm the real Ryan North. So just so you know, <laughs> it's me. And uh, let's just keep that in mind. And then I would publish the responses I got. And they were, they were it was fun. It was people. Some of them got the joke. Some, one guy got really mad. <laughs> Presumption that I would email him. I was so mad. And then the, the funny code of that was when I moved to Toronto, I looked up other Ryan Norse and uh, found one who lived literally like five blocks from me. Found him on Facebook. And I was like, ah, oh, Ryan North, I should contact him. I look at his Facebook and he's like 19, no, 18 years old, super, super young. And his on-again, off-again girlfriend is just pregnant with their child. And he's posting about how much he loves her and he's so happy for this. And I was like, this guy's got enough going on in his life right now. He doesn't need some <laughs> weird 30-year-old dropping a line being like, hey, we have the same name. <laughs> Hope you're happy with your wife and baby. What's going on? <laughs> so that, that was, I did not contact him. Um, I did contact one Ryan North who, was it? Was his name Ryan North? He was. And he claimed to be me from the future, like, like jokingly. And I was like, oh, hey, give me, give me some advice for the future. Tell me what the future's like. And we were just joking around. He writes back this like very serious message to be like, stay the fuck away from women named Sharon. They'll ruin your life. <laughs> I was like, whoa, Ryan, let's, let's be cool. So there are dangers to cold emailing people to joke around with them is the lesson there. That, that, that one guy who was really, really angry at you, did you email him back and say it's just a joke? Or like what happened with that? Um... I think he just posted what he wrote on my website and was like, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, it also says that you once got yourself in trouble with the authorities by sending prank emails. Yeah. Who hasn't? Like what sort of trouble? Have you, have you done a hard time? or? No, no. I lived in the village of Osgood at the time. And uh, Osgood had a list of every email address for their people working for this village of Osgood, like a list of contact emails. And this was, you know, 2000. So email was kind of new and fresh. And so what we did was we had took their name and their position and we emailed them. And there was someone who was like, my name is uh, Matt, Matt Joe, and I'm the party planner for Osgood. And I was like, what the hell's a party planner? So I emailed them saying, hey, Matt, I got this party I'm trying to plan. Like, how much dip should I get? How much chip should I get? Um, <laughs> Stuff like that, like jokey stuff. I, I also emailed the, the uh, person in charge of finance and told her she puts the fine in finance. <laughs> <laughs> that was my mistake because she felt threatened by this email and talked to the police and the police talked to Hotmail. This was in 2000, remember? Hotmail gave up my IP address. They talked to my ISP, got my address. And then the police came to my door. Uh, I was out, so my mom answered. <laughs> <laughs> and the cop was like, hey, hey, um... Your son's been sending emails to the Village of Osgood people? And she's like, I don't know what's going on. So the cop was, so thought was funny. But the takeaway from that was I was not allowed to email people in Osgood anymore unless it was for real. So that was the end of that little adventure. 
Uh, and how about this? Uh, the your connection to the arrest of this group of fifteen year old girls in <laughs> Ravenna, Ohio. Yeah, I used to host a site for my friend Poster Child, who was a street artist, and he did Mario blocks, sort of put them up around the urban oh. environment, make them a bit more playful, a bit more fun, uh, and said, "Hey, you can do this yourself. It's very easy to make your own Mario blocks." And these five young women in Ravenna. Uh, made their own Mario blocks, and the mistake they made was probably first being in Ohio, which doesn't really have much of a culture for urban art, and unexpected art in public spaces is new there. And the biggest mistake they made was they put, rather than hanging up the block, the last block they just put down in front of this, I think it was a courthouse? <laughs> oh! So people showed up and they found this box with a question mark on it in front of the <laughs> courthouse, and I guess they'd seen like 60s Batman cartoons <laughs> as well. So they brought in the bomb squad uh, to to check this question block bomb outside the courthouse. And of course, there was nothing inside. And uh, the women were held overnight, I think. And they had to write a letter explaining why this was a bad idea to the police chief. Sort of like slap on the wrist. And I wrote them. I was like, I'm really sorry. And they're like, no, it's stupid cops, man. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I like that, that the Wikipedia says I was once connected to the arrest of five women in Marino, Ohio, because it makes me sound really dangerous to know. And I <laughs> but it was a happy ending. All right, good. Um, and you mentioned your time traveler cheat sheet, and that featured prominently in a TEDx talk that you gave. Uh, how did you get involved with the TEDx phenomenon? Um, I pitched a uh, talk to them, and they said sure. And it's funny, because I... I really want to be a good talk. And this was just after the Kickstarter. And I think they were wanting, they were expecting me to talk about crowdfunding and blah, 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 which is not that interesting a topic most of the time. And I was like, no, I'm going to talk about friggin' time travel. <laughs> and I'm going to talk about where language comes from. And I'm going to talk about the greatest mistake we've made as a civilization and where and when to fix it. Uh, so what was the biggest mistake humanity ever made? Oh, it's, it's, uh, you really should watch the talk for the full argument. But um, it basically comes down to the time between when we could have invented language, talking and writing, writing specifically. The time between when we could have invented writing and when we did, there's a big gap there. And writing is what allows ideas uh, to be stronger than the bodies they're contained within, to survive the death of the host, <laughs> is what writing gives us. And the advances we've made with writing have been huge. And the time we spent without writing has also been huge. And so if you were to travel back in time and uh, talk to these people 45, 50,000 years ago and teach them how to write, you could, you would easily change the world. And it would, I would hope and argue probably for the better because we'd all be thousands and thousands of years more advanced than we are. Mm -hmm. One thing that really struck me in, in that talk, I, I always thought that pasteurization was all was really some really complex process. You know, super it's simple. basically just boiling milk. Like, I don't think you should get your name, get yourself named, get a process named after you for just boiling milk. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, if you're the first to do it, and you're, he wasn't actually the first. Uh, Pasteur had it had been invented in China uh, hundreds of years ago, but then lost as a way to preserve wine. Um, but it had a huge effect on the world, right? And it's not just milk, but any uh, liquid food, you can kill the bacteria, which makes it safer to drink and makes it decay a lot more slowly. And these are these are huge things. So I'll give them the credit for being the one who did it and got people 
to take them seriously because <laughs> you'd be like, yeah, I boiled the milk. It's better now. You'd be like, why, why is it better? It's the same milk. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see a difference. All right, cool. So uh, that does it for our questions. Uh, are there any other projects working on or any events or anything you want to mention? Oh, gosh. Um, we've talked pretty much about everything I've done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on a, a sequel to To Be or Not To Be. It's another Shakespeare book, but that's not going to be ready for a while yet. I've just started it. So, yeah, just the same Dicer Comics, Adventure Time Comics, Galaga Comics should be good for a while yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. So I think we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Ryan North. The new books are This Is How You Die and To Be or Not To Be. So, Ryan, thanks for joining us. Ah, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Ryan North for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, our panel topic today will be Choose Your Own Adventure Books. And as we're recording this, John is away in San Antonio at the World Science Fiction Convention. So we're going to be doing something that we've never done before in the history of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. That's right, today we're joined by not one, not two, but three guest geeks. So first up, we've got Matt London making his ninth appearance on the show. He's the creator of the animated web series Space Pirates in Space, and his short fiction appears in The Living Dead 2, Daily Science Fiction, and Space and Time. His graduate research at NYU's Interactive Telecommunications Program focused on choose-your-own-adventure-style narratives. So Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Then next up, we've got Cat Howard, who you may remember from our panel on sword fighting back in episode 78. Her short fiction appears in Lightspeed, Subterranean, and Oz Reimagined, and has been performed on NPR's Selected Shorts. Her metafictional story, Choose Your Own Adventure, appeared in Fantasy Magazine in 2011. So Kat, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And finally, we've got Grady Hendricks, who you may remember from our panel on The Devil in Hell back in episode 50. He's the author of the novels Occupy Space and Satan Loves You, and co-author of the comic book cookbook Dirt Candy. He interviewed the creators of the Choose Your Own Adventure series for his 2011 Slate.com article, Choose Your Own Adventure, How the Cave of Time Taught Us to Love Interactive Entertainment. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Hello! All right, and so first of all, I thought we should just talk about how we uh, first discovered Choose Your Own Adventure books and kind of our overall experience as readers of them. So, Kat, why don't you just go first and tell us uh, just uh, about your overall experience reading Choose Your Own Adventure books. Sure. Um, I discovered them, I don't remember if it was through the library or through, like, elementary school book fair, but I remember thinking that this was the best thing ever because you got lots and lots of versions of one story uh, in a book that, and that you could pick the one that you wanted. And so it felt like the books were bigger than they actually were. And as a child who, you know, tore through books like crazy, having that was was great. I also sort of figured that there had to be a right way to read them. That like, if you if you picked the right pages, you could get to a best version of the story. And so I was always trying to find that. All right, cool. And then uh, Matt, how about you? Um, I, will, I think my elementary school librarian uh first introduced me to them i was a fan immediately because it kind of had it kind of felt like a video game inside of a book i liked having that kind of agency and i actually think that librarians and teachers in particular really like these books for kids because uh they sort of trick kids into reading a lot more sort of like <laughs> what kat was saying you know it's like you have uh very short chapters which are fun and easy to read 
And then being able to sort of control the destiny of the book is something I think that kids who don't usually get a lot of say in what happens to them uh, are able to, like, take on their own agency in the book. Mm. And Grady? Yeah, I I think I ordered them from, like, the Scholastic Book Club. And I was a sucker from the beginning for the art. Like, the covers had those composite pictures that looked like old 70s movie posters, you know? Like, you know, you'd see the big head in the middle, and there was someone getting shot in the background, and a UFO, and a a hot air balloon. And uh, I just got so into them. I mean, I I think my first one was uh, Who Killed Harlow Thrombey? And then it was, like, Mystery of Chimney Rock, and after that, there was no turning back. And and for me, honestly, the art is what, like, sucked me in so much. And which is weird because the creators really didn't like the art for it at all. Yeah, I, I agree. The covers had this great pulp feel to them. And um, in your interview, Grady, uh, the creators mentioned that they tried really hard to not give the protagonist, the second person protagonist, any distinguishing characteristics so that nobody would feel excluded. Well, also, though, I mean, one of the big things for Edward Packard, because he's sort of he's one of the the big writers of this and by his accounts, the inventor. And uh, he started doing this when he was telling his two daughters bedtime stories and one wanted one one thing to happen and one wanted another. And he was always really depressed that the art for the books had a gendered lead character and it was always a boy. Yeah. And the publisher sort of forced that on. Yeah, they they wouldn't let it not happen. And he really, one of the reasons he feels like the book sort of declined is that, you know, Babysitter's Club came along and stole all the female readership, basically, from that age group. And he feels like if they had not had gendered artwork, that they could have lasted much longer and been more popular. Yeah, well, I mean, Kat, what do you think about that? As as a girl, did you appreciate the non-gendered nature of the narrative? And were you put off by the boys on the cover? Or did you notice that or what? I honestly don't remember noticing it. I had always been able to read pretty much anything um, and put myself, if it was a male main character and I was trying to imagine myself in the book, I'd just change the main character's name in my head to a girl's name that I liked better. I do remember reading The Babysitter's Club and, and Sweet Valley High pretty soon after that, but that was more of a, I want to read what the cool kids are reading rather than a, I don't want to read these books because they might be about boys choice. And then I guess I'll just say that um, actually it wasn't, I, I did read a lot of the Choose Your Own Advent, the literal Choose Your Own Adventure series, but some of the um, competing series actually uh, stick out in my mind more. And I think the first one I discovered was, uh, it, it was a series called Time Machine. And I found it in the, there was sort of a small bookstore in the town where I grew up. And on the back end of the, the the text and the uh, graphic design I found just really, really amazingly futuristic and sophisticated. And on the back of the book, it says, this book is a time machine. It will transport you to, you know, the past, whatever. And I literally thought the book was a literal time machine that would literally transport you into the past. And I was so excited. I can't believe I felt, you know, I discovered this awesome, awesome time machine in my, in the secret corner of the bookstore. Um, But then it turned out that they were just books, but um, it was still pretty cool. But uh, did people read other, like, those other types of Choose Your Own Adventure style books that weren't actually the technical Choose Your Own Adventure brand? There was a knockoff, a couple of knockoffs that I read. And then the ones I really liked were the Dungeons and Dragons. I think they were like the Dragonlance Choose Your Own Adventure ones or Dragon Quest. uh, Because I always wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons, but I didn't have enough friends to play it with me. (laughs) I I was a big fan of the uh, Nintendo game books. It was this short series of 
choose your own adventure books that featured like Mario and Luigi and sort of your, the popular Nintendo characters. Um, but what was awesome about those books, uh, was that besides being able to sort of choose the left right path choices, there was also a number of sort of like puzzles and activities inside of the book, mazes and word searches and things like that, where if you solve the puzzle correctly, it would tell you the right way to go. And so you could accumulate items and points and things as you're going through the book, and you'd sort of keep track of all of those in the back. And so as you reach certain points in the book, it'd be like, if you have the plunger, which you would have found on page 43, turn to page 96, or turn to page 2, and if you turn to page 2, then you die. <laughs> but if you have the plunger, then you you win, you know. So I really loved those books because of all of that extra stuff that kind of got thrown into it, made it feel even more interactive. Well, yeah, and that reminds me of the Fighting Fantasy series, which was another the other big one that I was really into. And that was it was more like Dungeons and Dragons, where you rolled up a character and then you fought. You know, it was like a choose your own adventure book, but within the book, you would encounter monsters, and then you know, you would have to sort of roll, you know, um, resolve the combat using dice and stuff. And I always, I, I just loved the premise of that so much. The first one I encountered was called Death Trap Dungeon, but like the name, they weren't kidding when they said Death Trap Dungeon. Like you would die instantly in that in that book. And I don't know whether I was just an idiot. Or whether, you know, the, anyone had ever play tested these at all. But like, I would just die instantly if I tried to actually follow the rules. And if so, of course, you get to a point where you're like, okay, well, now I'm invincible. And I still couldn't make it through any of those books. I still, I still <laughs> couldn't find like the ending. So, uh, I always, you know, I was always really captivated those, by those books, but it was always more in, uh, theory than in practice. Well, you know, one of the things, though, with all those fighting fantasy games and stuff in, like, the Nintendo game books is it's such a case of misapplied technology. Like, once you start getting into things like rolling dice and making maps, you may as well play a computer game. Like, at that point, a book's no longer doing what a book is good at doing. And I think that's maybe why I didn't get into any of the other series. Like, I was just straight into the regular choose-your-own-adventure stuff because you know, rolling dice and building characters. Like I'm the bad geek who's never played <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons and anything like that. So I was just, I wanted a book to be a book, not to be something else. I'll say, I don't know if anyone else ever played this time machine series I was mentioning, but one of the things that was interesting about that is that it was really, really forgiving. So in contrast to the um, fighting fantasy where you died instantly and the choose your own adventure where you die about half the time, this one, you couldn't possibly die if you got into any sort of um, dead end or, dangerous situation you would just jump in time and so it would like every single um branching plot looped back on each other so you know the more you you know you would never die you would just keep looping around and around and around until you finally found the right solution well it's like save points in a game almost i mean that was i i definitely used that to game the books when i when i was reading them as a kid like i do you i mean who would go back and read the introductory chapter like 50 times, right? Yeah. Each time you make a mistake, you'd be like, oh, well, I died. Let's backtrack to wherever I made my fatal error and keep going. Yeah, I could always go back about three or four choices because that's how many fingers I had to <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. stick into the book to mark the pages. Uh, I, I was never smart enough to use like bookmarks. I just started cheating. I just I just read ahead and figure out what was the better choice. I was terrible. Well, it's funny, when I was talking to the guys who, um, one of the, I can't remember, I think it was Montgomery, he was saying that they would, they actually had people who couldn't figure the books out. Like, literally, they would get letters from parents, their kids would pick up the book and try to read it from page one through page 118, 
in order without making choices and would be really confused and, and be very upset. Well, well, Grady, why don't you say, I mean, you said there's basically two, that um, Edward Packard and R.A. Montgomery are sort of the two, the fathers of the Choose Your Own Adventure series, right? Like, just how, yeah. how did it get started and why are there two of them and stuff like that? Well, there's sort of two ways it started. And it's it's Montgomery's story is actually the more interesting one. Packard was just a dude. He was a lawyer and he was making up bedtime stories for his daughters and they wanted different things. And so he sold, he's like, oh, I could do a book like this. And he shopped it around and sold it to some small publisher, and they came out with one or two of these proto-choose-your-own-adventure books. The first one, I think, was called Adventures on Sugarcane Island, um, and I can't remember what the other one was called. And then he saw an ad for a small children's press that R.A. Montgomery had started, and he sent them this idea because he didn't feel like it was getting a fair shake, and they really liked it, and they started to make these books and then rapidly sold the rights to Ballantyne. And so Ballantyne took the Choose Your Own Adventure name, and it had two separate contracts, one with R.A. Montgomery and one with Edward Packard, and they were totally separate from each other. And, you know, basically they were in contact, but they were both separate authors who were basically did most of the Choose Your Own Adventure books at first for Ballantyne. Montgomery's story is way more fascinating, sort of, uh, to boring people like me, which is that he was doing, you know, Cambridge in the, like, late 70s, early 80s was this hotbed. Cambridge, Massachusetts was this hotbed of interactive stuff. And he was working for a company that did government contracts to come up with role-playing games and social psychology tools to use in American diplomacy and defense applications. And so they were coming up with these role-playing games that Peace Corps volunteers were using to deal with Vietnam War protests when they were stationed in Southeast Asia. But it was all this hardcore social psychology. And they actually, from what I can tell, were either in the same building or near the same building that Infocom, which was the first text-based computer games, were in at the exact same time coming up with, uh, you know, the very first computer adventure games. And so Montgomery sort of, when he heard this idea from Packer, was like, holy cow, that's amazing. And so then he got all into it. But I just find it amazing that all this sort of interactivity, this proto-interactivity stuff was coming out of basically a like half-mile square area in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the same time. All right, so why don't you guys, um, do any of the Choose Your Own Adventure books stick out in your mind as being particularly memorable? Uh, so like Kat, do, do any of the titles uh, stick out in your mind? Um, I actually remembered reading Outlaws of Sherwood, which is kind of funny that that's one that I remembered because um, Ellen Kushner, who's, you know, a great, you know, world fantasy award winning, you know, super fancy writer now, actually wrote that one back in the day. Did she write it under her name or under a pen name? I'm not sure if she did or not, but I know she wound up actually writing five of them. Do you know what any of the other ones were? Yeah, I looked it up. I did my homework. Okay. <laughs> um, so there's Outlaws of Sherwood, or excuse me, Outlaws of Sherwood Forest, um, The Enchanted Kingdom, uh, Statue of Liberty Adventure, Mystery of the Secret Room, and Knights of the Round Table. Hmm. So w what was it about Outlaws of Sherwood Forest that made it stand out in your mind? I'm just a sucker for a Robin Hood story, <laughs> and I you know, so it was like, oh, this is a thing I like. And this is another thing I like, you know, and you can put them together. This is great, you know, so. All right, cool. And Matt, uh, favorite titles? I was a really big fan of the green slime. Um, <laughs> it's such a silly story. It's it's like, uh, it's kind of like Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, but with a giant green slime mole that eats people. 
So it's like a deadly slime, sort of like your classic, uh, like Dungeons and Dragons ooze, right? And it takes over this kid's house and then the whole city and the world, right? But so you're trying to stop the slime. And the thing that I remember most vividly about it is that there's this little throwaway detail in the open, in the introductory, uh, chapter, you know, the thing that you always skip. And it says that while the girl's trying to take care of her little brother, the little brother, like, plugs up the sink with wet toilet paper. And then, you know, five or six pages later, the ooze is starting to bubble out of the container you have it in, and you have to come up with some solution for what to do with the ooze. And uh, one of the choices is pour it down the sink. Now, to a careless reader, you go, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Get it out of the house. So you go and pour it down the sink, but then the sink is stopped up with the toilet paper, and so it overflows and eats everyone in the house. And I just, I love that because it felt kind of like an old, like, Encyclopedia Brown book or a Hardy Boys mystery, something where uh, there's a little detail in the text that will get you if you forget about it. I love that because it gave reasoning behind a lot of the choices, whereas most of the time I felt like some of the decisions that you would make in these books were kind of arbitrary. You know, it's like, do you take the cave or the bridge? And it's like, well, the cave could cave in and kill me. <laughs> the bridge could break and kill me. Or both could be fine. You don't know. You know, there's no way to tell. But in this case, there was like a specific thing that you could you could look at and go, oh, I know what I have to do. Uh, well, actually, when Matt mentioned the, the little note at the beginning, that makes me think of the most famous, maybe choose your own adventure feature was, it was one, it was like UFO 540 or something like that. Oh, 5440. Oh, yeah, 54, yeah. yeah. So did you guys actually ever read that one? That's one I never read, actually, as a kid. I don't think I did either. Are you talking about the Planet Ultima, though? Yeah, maybe? yeah. Okay, can I talk about it? Because it's awesome. Yeah, sure. So there's this one book where you're on a you're like on a spaceship and you're trying to find uh, this lost planet, this like Eden-like planet called Ultima. And so you spend the whole book trying to find the planet, but there is absolutely no way to find the planet reading the book normally. But there are, there's like a two page spread sort of tucked into the middle of the book that is you finding Ultima. And so you have to actually break the rules of the game by reading out of order in order to find the planet. Yeah. And, and at the beginning of the book, apparently it says something, you know, most of the books explain you have to don't read the pages out of order or something. But this one, there's a little note somehow suggestive of the fact that you might want to break the rules this time around. But you know, one of the things I thought was interesting about the choose your own adventure books is, and I think the thing I liked about them so much was the endings weren't moral. Like in a lot of YA books at the time, and, and I think even now, you know, endings are very moral. Like good people come to mostly good endings and bad people come to bad endings. And characters who do a lot of heroin and random thrill killing usually come to a sticky end where they realize the errors of their ways. And characters who help people and believe in themselves come to good endings. And the thing that was so great about the Choose Your Own Adventure books is the endings were so amoral, like, or, or moral-less. I'm not sure. Im they're not really immoral, but, you know, like, Mystery of H Chimney Rock. Like, some of the endings are eaten by a cat. In some endings, you shrink for no reasons. In others, you die of pneumonia. In some, you suffocate. And I think in one, you wind up in hell. Like, it, there was so much variety of what could happen to you, and it had nothing to do with whether you were making good choices or bad choices. I, I just thought it was amazing, this, this variety of, of 
of choice, you know, where, you know, reading the, reading the Bridge to Terabithia, great book, but you don't have an ending where the kids get abducted by, like, super intelligent monkeys who are planning to crash the world economic system. In House of Danger, you could. And it's, it's, there's something so amazing and surreal about that. Actually, uh, speaking of crashing the world economic system, I went to a, an event at uh, uh, the Singularity and Company bookstore, and people were reading from their favorite choose your own adventure books and stuff like that. And I'd never read this one, but this this girl read this um, section of it was like a uh, choose your own adventure book about space pirates. And in one of the endings, uh, you end up in a post scarcity uh, universe where uh, you know now there's no point in doing space piracy anymore because all material goods are now worthless. So there's just a picture of all the space pirates just looking really sad. And <laughs> But yeah, and there, there was one ending. I can't remember what it was. I think it was a really early one. It was like, um, it wasn't Space and Beyond. It might have been a Space Patrol, but where you wind up in a loop. Like, for no reason, you're doing all the right things. And, like, it's, like, on page 84, it's, like, turn to page 36. And page 36, like, turn to page 84. And, and you God, just wind yes, up in this. Remember that one. That made me so mad. <laughs> <laughs> so how many times, Kat, did you keep flipping back and forth before you? Uh... Like, a lot. Like, you know, because it's, like, you know, what is what is insanity doing the same thing over and expecting a different ending? I don't know why I kept, you know, thinking that maybe I'd get a different page this time. I don't know. I, I, I think it was one of the first books I remember actually throwing across the room. <laughs> is it justified in this story in terms of some sort of time-space loop or something? Or Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you travel through space and there's occasionally, they warn you that if you go, I think it's going through a black hole or something, you get in a time loop. And, you know, but no, it has nothing to do with the choices you've made. You just get stuck there. Uh-huh. It's just mean. <laughs> but now with you guys, because early on, the Choose Your Own Adventure books I thought were so great because, like, there was a Western one and a science fiction one and a super spy one and a horror one. But then were you guys reading them? Because it was sort of I was a little older for them. The The pronoun ones like you are a shark. You are a ninja. You are a monster. You are a millionaire. I never saw any of those ones. Well, the you are books and like where where they just gave up on doing sort of genre fiction and like you know it's like you are a shark or skateboard champion or like you know like like taekwondo master like it just became like you did stuff like it was very it's weird the books took this weird turn. I mean, what was the what were some of the ones that were least kind of adventurous? I mean, where it's is there was just like you are a attorney or something or accountant or something oh i think they had there was a guy i talked to for the article i did uh named sean michael robinson and he had actually tried to write his own choose your own adventure books as a kid and the two titles he remember were because he wrote them when he was like 11 one was you are a homeless and and the other was you are a teenage girl and he was like you know i was so fascinated by what it would be like to be a teenage girl like what were they thinking about um and he's lost it. I wish he could find it. But no, but they were stuff like uh, you're a surfer. You know, you are a roller skating star. You are a like dolphin. Um, you know, you are a train conductor. Like they got a little banal. Oh, you play. They did a lot of sports ones like uh, soccer star where you're a soccer star. Yeah, and I read that Edward Packard had never actually played soccer or seen a soccer game when he wrote that book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think there's actually one called, I think it's like, you don't, no, it was, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> actually, speaking of like run a homeless and teenage girl and stuff, there was this um, 
this website I saw once, and it was like trying to convince kids not to run away from home. And it presented this basically to choose your own adventure story. And it's like, you know, this is what will happen if you run away from home. And it's like, the, you know, you've just, the, it starts out and says, like, you've gotten off the bus in Los Angeles or whatever. Do you go to a shelter or sleep under the bridge, whatever? And oh, you make no. choices. And it just like every choice, you know, leads to something bad. But it sort of gives you a sense of once you're out on the street, what your choices are and what kind of things could happen to you. And I thought it was way more engaging in that choose your own adventure format than any other format that I could imagine, you know? Well, you know, it's funny because they did a few historical ones, too. They, they did like a... um a Nazi one very late in the series in the 150s or so, where it's like you are in Nazi Germany. They did an underground railroad where you're like helping slaves escape from the South before the Civil War. Like they they really like, you know, really went there in some of these books. Hmm. Um, well, I guess that brings up the next issue I want to talk about, which is just sort of what is the literary merit of Choose Your Own Adventure books? And will people ever, will there ever be... <laughs> Will, will a choose your own adventure version of Hamlet ever be more than kind of a novelty gag? Will whatever be something like that ever be considered great literature? Um, I know, Kat, what do you think about that? Well, I think, I mean, to, to use your, your example of Hamlet specifically, I mean, I think what Ryan North did by turning Hamlet into a choose your own adventure book actually works really well with the format of the play. I mean, the play is thematically, there's a lot of indecision. There are a lot of places where there are secrets and things that characters don't know and people open the wrong people's letters and things like that. And so I think what it does is it, it pushes on the things that are already there and sort of foregrounds them and makes them obvious. And so it, it's like any other kind of adaptation of Shakespeare. It's it's taking taking it and shaking it and turning it inside out, making you see it in a different way. And I think something like that absolutely could become a classic. Hmm. Matt, what do you think about that? I think that we are sort of moving away from the choose your own adventure model a little bit just because I think that interactive entertainment is going in a much more uh, dynamic direction. And at the same time, I think that it's hard to express the sort of narrative arc of a story in an interactive format. What I've been seeing a lot of recently in interactive storytelling is that it's not about the audience being able to decide the ending of the story or being able to dictate the events of the story, but rather it's the ability to experience uh, a fixed story in a number of different ways. So if you look at some of the interactive theater that's becoming very popular now, or even video games with strong narrative content, Generally, the ending is pretty much fixed, but the way that you experience the journey to get to that ending is unique, and that's where audience agency sort of comes in. So I don't know if if uh, Choose Your Own Adventure novels will ever have a resurgence that's not more about the nostalgia than it is about the pure entertainment value. Well, I thought it was interesting, Grady, in your article you interviewed one of the designers is Zork, and he was actually really contemptuous of the book as a format for uh, right. activity because he says, well, look, you only have 150 pages or so to work with, and if you just do the math, there's just not that many choices you can make in the course well, yeah. of the story before you yeah. just run out of pages. To Well, it's interesting because he didn't read a choose-your-own-adventure book until after Zork was on the market, and he was like, oh, this is a knockoff of what we're doing. But the Choose Your Own Adventure guys, they saw Zork later after they've been doing Choose Your Own Adventure. And they're like, oh, he's doing what we're doing, but it's less literary. Well, 
I mean, Matt, what do you think about whether, I mean, because it seems like in the um, the Choose Your Own Adventure books that the branching storylines had a lot more interesting things than most video games. That, you know, you could end up in Atlantis or you could end up on Mars or like who even knows what else, your babies that are getting eaten by slime. And video game, branching stories in video games, it seems to me, are much more rudimentary and don't have anything like that kind of variety of um, subject matter. Um, do you agree with that? I do. Uh, you know, I think that uh, the reason why that is, is it's much more complicated to design models and animations and textures and materials and all these things that go into designing a, a three-dimensional video game um, that you can just sort of type and have, you know, as vivid in a, just a few words um, in a book, you know. You know, if I could just jump in, I can't, this is something I sort of was thinking about while I was reading your story on Lightspeed. I liked what you did, Kat, with your story because you just totally eliminated the choose-your-own-adventure choices, which was, gave this really weird result. Like, it felt very, like, fairy tale and very sort of grim and ominous. Which was sort of what I was trying to do, actually, so thank you. Yeah. No, 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 exactly. That's what I'm saying, which I thought was a really interesting thing to do with it. Well, well Kat, since uh, Grady mentioned your story, why don't you just talk a little bit about sort of how you came up with that and what the process of writing it was like? Sure. Um, like all good things, it started on Twitter. Hmm. Um, I was actually, I was working on something else, another story, another project. I don't even remember what at this point, but you know, I got into, you know, you, you guys know, you get to the point you're writing and you have no idea how to get out of that scene. Just none. So I was like, dear Twitter, please tell me how to finish this. I'm going to go walk the dog. I'll be right back. And I got back and literally my at mention screen was just full of like, 25, 30 replies of rocks fall, everyone dies. And I was like, okay, thanks, funny people. That's really helpful. But it made me start to think about all those things that we get told as writers not to do. You know, you can't actually end a story with rocks fall, everyone dies. Unless you're Neil Gaiman writing Sandman, you can't end something with, and then they woke up and have it be meaningful. You know, there's there's all these things that, that we just were not supposed to do it. And I was like, I wonder how many of those you could put in a story and have it actually work as a story. What's a format that would let me do that? Choose your own adventure. I was actually kind of sad that the one thing that I couldn't get in there was rocks fall, everyone dies. <laughs> um, but I, just, I made sure that, that each choice was a, okay, this is a choice that you're not supposed to do in storytelling. This is a choice that you're not supposed to do in storytelling. And then I took, you know, and then I took the choice away from the reader. You actually can't, you know, go through and pick your pick your own ending. Um, and I made the story complicit in it. At one point, it tells you that you're cheating, you're doing it wrong, and it throws you out. Well, did you, uh, Kate, uh, Kat, I actually wanted to ask you, did you read that um, Kate Atkinson book, Life After Life? I haven't yet. And I know that she does. It's the same sort of, you know, the, the person keeps being reborn and progressing through farther and farther. Well, it's interesting because it's almost like a really pretentious version of your story because she, it, it really is like, you know, the, the story starts and the character's a baby and it's stillborn. And then chapter two, the story starts and it's a character who's a baby and the doctor arrives in time, but then she dies in her crib. And, and, but she doesn't acknowledge the choose your, that choose your own adventure did it first. And that's something I really liked about your story is that there's this acknowledgement that there is something very much like real life to the randomness and the morbidity of the choices. I mean, like in Choose Your Own Adventure, it's like kids, you as the reader, it was kind of brutal because you just kept dying. 
and horrible things happen to you. And it's like, and, and, but there's something sort of lighthearted and funny about it because it's something we're all nostalgic for from our childhood, which is choose your own adventure. Well, when, when Kat was mentioning giving the reader, uh, appearing to give the reader a choice, but not really, it was reminding me, there was a line in your article, Grady, where somebody said, uh, uh, you know, do you believe in free will or not? If yes, turn to page 79. <laughs> if no, turn to page 79. Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's the thing, though. It's like, it's like, uh, giving you the illusion of choice, but not really. Like Kat just said, well, that's kind of like most of your life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, am I going to eat it? Like, am I going to order from Papa John's or Domino's tonight? Um, all right. Well, Matt, we mentioned that you, uh, you studied sort of choose your adventure type narratives as part of your graduate studies. You want to yeah. talk about that? Yeah, so um, in the uh, interactive telecommunications program at NYU, we do a number of uh, sort of interactive storytelling and um, uh, research on like immersive narratives and things like that. So I approached it from an angle of a writer and game designer. You know, what are new ways to tell interactive stories? And you're largely a filmmaker, right? And so are, is video being used for choose your adventure type storytelling? I mean, that's been going on for a long time, um, but has never really caught on unless you count full motion video sequences inside of some, you know, old fashioned CD-ROMs. Um, the two formats do not really go well together, especially because as a film person, I think of movies as a collective experience. They're viewed best in an audience. And the problem with that is, you know, get five people together, what are the odds that you can get them to agree on a restaurant, let alone the destiny of the characters in this story? Mm -hmm. Well, you could have, like, people, everyone has a, uh, you know, voting thing and, you know, the majority rules or something. Right, yeah, and then and then 49% of the audience is dissatisfied with the story, <laughs> right? So, I mean, like, that's the challenge. Right. Well, just as I was doing research for this, I um, I typed "choose your own adventure" into YouTube, and one of the things that came up, I know it was kind of a dumb thing, but it's this thing where this attractive woman gets in a hot tub with you, and you're supposed to pick her up, and you can choose different approaches, and the the choices appear on the screen, and you click them, and because of the way that YouTube is set up, you know, it can take you to a new clip then, right, for each one that you pick, and um, this one was kind of dumb. The two choices I watched, it said you can either peel her a potato. Or call your friend John Stamos to say hello to her. And I was like, all right, this is kind of dumb. Uh, and I didn't watch any farther than that. But it seems like you could do things with that format or I don't know. Do yeah, think? no, absolutely. And there, are, and there are other more interesting examples, I think, of that. It is a thing that's been done on YouTube. YouTube does accommodate that kind of video storytelling. But I can't imagine it. I mean, never say never, right? But I can't imagine it, it really catching on as a uh, mainstream form of entertainment. I don't know if you remember in the early 90s when they were trying to set up the movie theaters, the one on 3rd and 11th in Manhattan's one, where audiences could push an A, B, or C button at certain points. I mean, it was just a nightmare of a car wreck idea. Wait, see, I've, I've never even heard of that, Grady. Like, tell, like, tell me more about that. Why, so what it was supposed to be is there was going to be, you'd watch a movie, and, and this was when video projectors were getting more high quality, and they had set up one of the screens at the 3rd and 11th Street Theater so you could have this interactive experience, and you'd go in and the audience would basically do what you were saying, which is vote, everyone A, B, or C at certain points. And I think if I remember correctly, 
it was like it started with this guy delivering newspapers and then like you know the narrative sort of picked up from there it was like a bit of an action thing after that but but so then you'd make a choice and they'd usually have one or two choices ready to go like they'd already shot choice a b and c and then they'd shot from there the next a b and c but then the third one you'd have to come back in a month and huh. see you know they film the net and it's like you know and it was just ridiculous like you know, like Matt was saying earlier about one reason games don't do these like wacky turns that like the Choose Your Own Adventures books did where suddenly you wind up in Atlantis because of modeling and rendering and making the graphics and all that. Like, can you imagine a movie like, oh, we've spent $200 million on this movie where someone never leaves their room because <laughs> we have to keep every variation has to be covered. It, it just didn't fit movie technology. Hmm. The other thing that just occurs to me along those lines, though, is the Dragon's Lair cartoon. I don't know if everyone, anyone ever oh, watched yeah, that. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, but it was this cartoon. It was on when I was a kid. I don't know if it's still around. But basically, before the commercial break, the hero would be presented with two or three options, and you would pick which one you preferred. And then when it came back, it would show you the results of each of those choices. And two of them were disastrous death and or mission failure. And so the story would only continue along the successful one. Did you ever play the Dragon's Lair video game? Uh, video game. I remember it being insanely frustrating. Yeah, and the thing that was so weird about it is I was reading about it a little while ago, and the technology of the Dragon's Lair video game was literally a laser disc player. And when you made choices on the arcade keyboard, like keypad, it would just skip to whatever track you would pick. Like that was the depth of the technology. It was the the skip chapter button on your DVD player. <laughs> That game is so hard. <laughs> oh, it was impossible. We have our expectations of narrative. Like, I keep going back and thinking about, like, the last Lord of the Rings movie where everyone was like, oh, my God, how many endings? Is- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they should have just let you pick one of those. Right. And th- I mean, that as you guys were talking about, these interactive movies and the audience can choose. And all I was thinking of was, yeah, you know, what, you know, what, what about things like that? What do you do when you have somebody who just doesn't know how to, how to, you know, give the audience a satisfying resolution to their story. They're so attached to it. They're just going to keep telling you over and over, you know, and then that's, I guess that is sort of the way that the, the technology can be used in a way that just does not serve the story. And I think that's kind of the question that, you know, those of us who, who create stories, whether on film or in video or on paper should be asking ourselves is, is what we're doing, you know, this, these fancy buttons and things like that, that we can press. Is this helping us tell a better story? Well, that's sort of the job. I mean, you're getting paid as a creator to make the choices for the audience. You know what I mean? And it's like, and everything you do, like all the little like writerly tricks, like suspense and tension and voice and all that stuff, it's just ways of bullying the writer or the reader down this path that you predetermined and giving them some satisfaction because you've taken away all their like agency. The flip side of it is, is that I very much believe that the experience of art, the experience of whether it's hearing a song or seeing a painting or, you know, playing a game, watching a film, reading a story is interactive, you know, that you, it's not going to be a complete work until you have an audience for that work. And every person from the audience is going to see it in a slightly different manner because they're going to bring their own experiences and everything else to it. It's why you can get, you know, people who disagree about, well, what actually happened here? Who, who is the hero and all of those things. And so to some extent, we're doing this already anyway. We are giving people an interactive experience. It's just a very tightly guided one. Well, and also I think what you're saying, though, is that the satisfaction isn't 
interactivity of narrative or choice. Like, I want this to happen next. I want this to happen next. But more interactivity of interpretation. Right. Right. Like, this means this to me. That's what fan fiction is for. (laughs) (laughs) But did you have any desire whatsoever after you wrote your story to actually do a choose your own adventure? No. Oh, no. I can't plot for anything. (laughs) You have to be able to plot to write those. Has anyone ever tried actually writing a choose your own adventure book? Not since I was like 10 years old. Yeah. I, I, I did once when I was a kid too, but they were like Dragon's Lair. It was like choice A and choice B and choice B you die. And choice <laughs> A leads to the next choice where you can either die or not, basically. Yeah. Um, I wrote one. Uh, it was never published and I can't talk about the uh, some of the details of it, but I can talk about my writing process. So... If you want to sue Matt London for a copyright, <laughs> turn to page one thirty nine. <laughs> well, yeah, no, tell us. Yeah, what was the? Was it hard? Was it easy? Like, how did it go? No, I mean, you know, it's the kind of thing that I like. I really like that kind of writing, and so I jumped at the opportunity to be able to sort of plot out the the branching storyline. You know, in in the sort of old school video games that had lots of you know real choices like this. Um, the Wing Commander series is one that pops to mind immediately. I would always sort of study the the plot branches and see where things loop back on each other, where the branches happened, what the key decisions were. I love that stuff. So being able to sort of take um, that that writing style and sort of make it my own was was awesome. Now, now Edward Packard he described his process. He would draw a tree, yeah, and. Um... Is that what yours look like? Did you did you draw? Yeah, that's graph? very much. I mean, that's very much what I did. You know, like what I would do is I'd start at the beginning, and you know, I knew right away that there were sort of four big set pieces that I wanted to use, and so I knew that early on in the book it was going to branch into these four different uh, areas, and so from there, what I would kind of do is work out all the wrong choices. Right. So I'd sort of take it, they, the wrong path and then go down branching and then branching again and then write the four sort of failures on that side and then take the winning one and then the next branch and sort of do it that way again. So it's sort of like you're writing it the way you would read it, except you're always turning left um, until you lose. And then you backtrack and then again, the next one, making the second left all the way until you lose and then on like that to the end. It's, I mean, it's, uh, it required a sort of, uh, you know, you needed to be a little methodical to do it, but, you know, I, I am all about plotting out stuff first. Um, so it, I kind of was wired to be able to, to write a book like that. Yeah. Did you have any like play testers or anything? Yeah, uh, I did. And, um, you know, and, and the responses were really positive. It's, I think the, the key thing is that you, have to make sure that each read feels like a complete story, you know, because you have to understand that even if the person loses, they may be reading 20, 40, 60 pages before they lose. And like then to have the ending be really unsatisfying or uh, superfluous in some way can be really can like really stink for the reader. Um, so what I tried to do was make every ending, even the you know, quote unquote, bad endings feel like real endings. You know, it's funny. I was just thinking when you were talking about that and how like you put in this time commitment to the book and you want an ending that makes sense. 
it's, uh, you know, I got the To Be or Not To Be, the Ryan North uh, book, which is like 700 and something pages. And one of the bonus items you can get with it is the Choose Your Own Adventure Yorick comic book, uh, which is like 40 pages. And the Yorick one is so unsatisfying that I, I tossed it. I gave it away. Because every choice that doesn't follow the Shakespeare narrative, he just kills you. Or something horrible happens to you right away. And so you feel very, like, bullied. In the To Be or Not To Be, you can choose to be a marine biologist <laughs> and have other choices. You can do all this stuff. But, like, the York one, because the endings bullied you along a certain path, and because the endings were just like, ha-ha, you read 70 pages and now you just got run over by a truck kind of thing, it was so not just unsatisfying, but, like, rage-inducing. Mm-hmm. So, but, so basically, I think you're saying that there's no way to do a good Choose Your Own Adventure book in 40 pages, right? That it just has yeah, to be. Yeah, I think... But yeah, I I think you you can't do it that well in 40 pages. You need the room. But I also think, like Matt's saying, each ending has to have a certain amount. It doesn't have to be moral, but it has to have a, a, an amount of satisfaction to it because you've been reading for like a while. And then there's something random and horrible happens to you. And it's like Kat was saying earlier, it just makes you full of rage. <laughs> well, and I think I think Matt's point is a good one that you have to respect your reader. You have to respect yeah. whoever is on the other side of that story. And maybe you don't give them exactly what they want, but you give them something that will satisfy them in the end. Well, I mean, speaking of uh, coming to a horrific ending, uh, I mean, the Choose Your Own Adventure series was sell- sold something like 250 million copies. How did it stop ever stop, given that scale of success? Uh, Grady, do you have some? Uh... Yeah, I mean, it actually came to a really lousy ending. I mean... The books did what book crazes always do. I mean, there was something like 180 books in the series. And, you know, it was a huge burst of popularity. And a lot of imitators came out. Some of the imitators were from Bantam, which is bizarre to me. That Bantam was publishing competing choose-your-own-adventure type book series to compete with their own choose-your-own-adventure property. Okay, um, great. Earlier you said Valentine? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Earlier I said Valentine. I should have said Bantam. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm really sorry. Um but so, yeah, so Bantam was actually publishing their own competition. And so Choose Your Own Adventure sales were declining. And rather than find something new to do, um, you know, and, and Packard and Montgomery both said they have lots of ideas to keep it going. But uh, Bantam just stopped. And they actually abandoned the trademark. They, they lit it lapse. And Montgomery instantly jumped on it and filed for it and got and won the Choose Your Own Adventure trademark. Um, which Packard didn't really thrilled about because he feels like it was his idea that Montgomery came on to. But yeah, I mean, they, they cannibalized their own line. They really treated it, I think, with a lot of disrespect. I mean, to have Choose Your Own Adventure and then to be publishing also Pick a Path or whatever it was they were doing, it's like, I don't get it. Um, and, uh, but the interesting thing with Choose Your Own Adventure is the books keep having this thing, this same pattern in other countries. And when I was interviewing people for the article, it was, uh, they were talking about how the last big burst of choose your own adventure craze were the books getting translated into Czech. And in Czechoslovakia, it became a huge trend. Lots of homegrown competition started up. The book sold millions of copies and then the competition beat it down and it declined and went away. And that was sort of the last of it is Czechoslovakia in the early 2000s, I think. Well, they went to be Czechoslovakia though, right? What's that? It would have been Czech Republic by that point, though. Right? Oh, Czech Republic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, man, I need a fact checker. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's really crazy they abandoned this because I just feel like these books could have been repackaged and resold and 
new ones. I mean, kids love this stuff at a certain age. You know, it's sort of their their entry into longer fiction, I think, or at least for me, they were. Yeah. Well, so wait. So, um, so Montgomery got the uh, trademark, and Packard is not happy about that. You said, right? well, yeah, just because you know Packard wasn't aware that Rand uh, that Ballin, uh sorry, Packard wasn't aware that Bantam was um, going to abandon the trademark. And they just did. And Montgomery knew, somehow knew it was going to happen. And he was keeping an eye out. And, um, you know, the books were each contracted to Packard and Montgomery. And they both had their own subwriters, subcontractors working for them. So who was it you were saying earlier, Cap, who wrote the Sherwood Forest one? Ellen Kushner? Yeah. So she was contracted to one of these guys, not to Bantam. And they were actually paying her and paying on the royalties and everything to her. Directly, it was like there was these two competing guilds or unions almost, and um, they each retained the copyright to their own books. And uh, but only Montgomery was really on the ball enough and watching out for that uh, trademark to get abandoned, and he he bought it as soon as it went on the market. And so now he sells his books under the Choose Your Own Adventure titles, and um, and through the company he's got is called Choose Co. And Packard has actually was hired by Simon and Schuster to release his books under a, uh, the U Ventures um, trademark. So they're the same books as Choose Your Own Adventure, but he doesn't have the trademark for it. And that's just within the last year or two, right? That those. Have yeah, it's just the last couple of years that he started doing that. Um, and you know, all these companies want to make these books apps and you know, interactive books on iPads and Kindles and all that stuff, which is more power to them. I mean. You know, there are a lot of them. There are 183 or something. Yeah, and they were saying there's well, and they were saying there's a lot of things you can do. You know, if it's an app that you couldn't do if it's a book. So, for example, you could have you know like a 60 second t- uh, countdown or something that you have to make a yeah. decision in. No, exactly, and that sort of brings them. I mean, to my lights, that almost makes them more like games than books. But yeah, I say tomato, you say tomato. By the way, you had asked earlier what the most boring of the Choose Your Own Adventure books were, and I actually was poking around, and I think it has to be Choose Your Own Adventure number 172, Mountain Biker. Dude, Colorado has some of the most awesome mountain biking trails in the United States, and you are psyched to spend your summer there. But are you good enough to enter the Oot Mountain Biking Racing Series and win against the other racers? I mean, good God, a book about one mountain biking race it sounds awful. Yeah, so it has, I assume nobody's looked at any of these new Choose Your Own Adventure books. Is anyone tempted to check them out, having having heard about this? Not me. I probably <laughs> wouldn't. It was, you know, it was, I think, I can't remember who said, but it was, you know, it's a, it's a, they're a thing that you, at least as they are packaged and written now, they're a thing that you read at a very specific time you know, gateway to longer fiction, gateway to more, more involved fiction where you have to hold more things in your head and, and then you're done. See, I, I, I could definitely like, if I'm on the, like this on the subway or the train or something, I could see getting a children adventure book on my iPad and, you know, doing that rather than playing angry birds or something, you know, where I don't have the concentration to read, you know, some you, you know, it's, novel, but it's funny though, when I was rereading a bunch of these to do the article, I loved these books when I was a kid, and I found them so tediously boring reading them now. It was just like, I wasn't interested in a main character who was a complete blank, you know? I wanted to have a main character who's like a one-legged albino anarchist, you know, with a, with a talking monkey for a friend. I don't want to read about this anonymous you. It's just not, it didn't work for me. 
Yeah, well, and, and how interesting can the social interactions be if it has to be so general that you can't yeah. tell if it's a man or a woman, right? Or Yeah. Although I do still want to go back and read You Are a Shark, because I can't think of a more genius book title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't really feel compelled to go back and, and uh, read any of the old ones or, or even, you know, sort of take a look at the new ones. I've tried, uh, you know, and the problem is that now I've sort of been so programmed by games that I'm more and more kind of separating them a bit. So it's about um, either you're playing a game to play a game or you're reading a book to read a book. And I don't want my games to be in my books and I don't want my books to be in my games. Like games that have long sections of text, I just skip, which is a terrible thing for me to say because you know, it's like, it's you want to get hired as a game, my livelihood. Exactly. <laughs> um, and at the same time, you know, it's like anytime I'm reading a book, it's it, it, what was the was it level 23? The book that was done by the guy who created CSI. It's this book where, you know, like every other chapter, you have to go and, you know, watch some streaming video online to get like sections of the story in between. And it's just like, get just let me read my book. Like, why do I have to go log on, you know, to be able to <laughs> hear the story, right? Well, I mean, Kat, you said that that's, that these are something that you read at a specific age. Would you encourage kids of a specific age to get into them now? Or do you think that they've just basically been supplanted by other forms of media? Um, you know, I, I, have a, I have a nephew who's about at the age where I think that, you know, about at the age that I was when I was reading them. And to be honest, until we started having this conversation and thinking about them, it they wouldn't have been on my radar to send to him just because there's a million books, you know. And so that wasn't really kind of a thing. Having had this conversation, you know, if I came across him, maybe I would just to see if he liked them and just be like, but it would be like more of a nostalgia present. Like, hey, I liked these things when I was your age. See if you like them. No big deal if you don't kind of thing. Not because, oh, my gosh, this is a book that I think everyone should read. <laughs> I really like that idea, though. Like, you know, like everyone should read The Secret of Mystery Hill. <laughs> I, I don't know. I ever. I kind of feel that way about Space Vampire. I think everyone should read that book. <laughs> Wait, which one's Space Vampire? Oh, it's so good, Grady. Seriously. Oh, my God. Uh, that's that's the one that sticks to my mind the most. I talked about it a lot on a previous episode. It's a so great title. I don't want to go yeah. into it too much. But um, but basically, yeah, you're, you're a sort of ensign on a spaceship, and they've captured a vampire, and they're going to execute him by opening up a airlock and exposing him to sunlight. And you're just supposed to oh guard him. Oh, my God. And you're supposed to guard him. And if you screw up, you know, if you just follow all the directions, he gets executed and everything's fine. But so then you go back and you're like, all right, let's screw this up a little bit. So you, you screw up in various ways and then the vampire escapes and he's loose on the ship and all sorts, and all hell breaks loose. But what's, what's really interesting about it is that it's the thing that actually Ryan North doesn't like, but it, I thought it, it worked really well in this book where the entire reality of the universe is contingent on completely arbitrary choices you make. Uh, so, you know, if you turn left in this hallway, it leads to a branch where the, vampire is a good guy and if you turn right at this hallway it leads to a branch where the vampire is a bad guy in this universe but it's, so it means that you can keep reading the book over and over again and you never know whether to trust the vampire or not because he can be a good guy or a bad guy you know depending, oh, depending awesome. on the story hey, i take it back i kind of want to read space vampire no now. it's do, do, trust me it's, it's so awesome um i am looking at the cover of it right now oh yeah. my god how did i not read this as a kid 
I drew, I like, drew, I have so many drawings of me trying to replicate the artistic mastery of that cover. Actually. You know, the only way I'd like this book more if it was you are a space vampire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, and it's an Edward Packard one. Oh my god, so great. No, seriously, I recommend. I recommend it to everyone. Like in one of the in, in one of the storylines, the vampires are good guys and they're just looking for more food. And so they've come to our solar system because they think that maybe Mars is a planet completely covered by an ocean of blood. And so, <laughs> oh my god! And they're very disappointed. Oh, uh, I take it back. This this one might have to be on school reading list. <laughs> and actually, you know, our friend uh, Eugene Myers, he has it. You know, there was some website where they're like, "What's the best book of all time?" And he had Space Vampires, the best book of all time. So <laughs> it's not just it's not just me. All right, well, Matt, you know, I sent you that article about how they've optioned Choose Your Adventure for a feature film or something. Uh, what is, what's your reaction to that? Um, I'm, I'm skeptical at best that this movie will ever get made. I mean, you know, hey, Netflix, right? It could happen. But it just, like, it, it, sort of like what Grady was saying with the stuff at the, the New York movie theater. No one wants to... It's just, it's, I don't think it could possibly work. Um, but like, you know, never say never. So, I mean, do you think they'll try to do some sort of branching storyline or? I don't know. I mean, maybe it would be something like, that's a good question. That's actually an interesting point. Maybe it's not an interactive movie. Maybe it's just a movie about interactive movies. Or they could have just optioned the, you know, they could have just optioned the franchise and they're just going to take elements of the stories and, you know, make a movie out of it. Yeah, yeah, uh, or or like you know the it, it or it could be like um what's it called Stranger Than Fiction right where the character has some sort of agent you know the main character has agency in what happens in the story right so it's like he's making decisions or she's making decisions to um you know like change reality or you know has to face a bunch of different horrible deaths um there are some yeah there are thematic things that they could do. They totally have to make it because they got to get David Fincher and, you know, they got to get, uh, you know, what's his name for the West Wing. And they basically need to make it about Montgomery and Packard and their friendship and their falling out and what happened later. And it's going to be like the social network, but for children's books and for space <laughs> and with things like space vampire and you are a shark. <laughs> it could be like Shakespeare and love, except about the writing of you are a shark. <laughs> Oh my god, it'd be so... Oh no, it'd have to be about Space Vampire. The movie, uh, hearing about the movie immediately made me think of the movie Clue, the movie version of Clue. Oh yeah. Uh, which has three endings. And I've only ever seen it uh, with all three sort of shown in rep at the, end of the, at the end of the film. But apparently when it first came out in theaters, they would put different endings yeah. on the movie? And so... Yeah. Was it like each theater got a different ending or was it that you could go back over and over again and see it in different ways? Yeah, what it was was their original idea was they would send the movie out with a different ending on it. And they some genius marketer thought that that would increase rewatchability, that audiences would pay for a second ticket to see the movie again with a different ending. And it, it didn't work out so well. And so then when it went to video, they put all the endings just together. Well, this is interesting. So I was just looking this up. There was also a novelization of Clue, the movie, um, which had different endings. Yeah, so how did that work in the novelization? Uh, so, oh, 
Got it. Okay, I see what's this. It's not that the Clue novelization had different endings from, it didn't, had different endings like the movie. They used a different ending that had been in the screenplay that was cut and never shot. So they used, there was three endings for Clue and they used the fourth ending for the end of the novelization. None of, none of this made that movie a success. <laughs> Should be noted. <laughs> Surely in, uh, you know, like, syndicated television replays that's it's made its money back you know i hope so <laughs> it was such a i mean it's got tim curry it's and so madeline khan and christopher lloyd in it come yeah. on oh it is you know, funny it's a great movie <laughs> i guess i was just gonna say this is something kat was saying a minute ago about how like you know if her nephew was like you know reading these books or she would give them to her nephew but more as a nostalgia item and I think that's sort of where choose your own adventure books wind up. It's a nostalgia item, like, like a horse and buggy. And there's still people who collect horses and buggies, you know, and like they polish them up and they have little races, but it's a, it's a niche. And these books really came along when everyone was getting excited about interactivity, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and early computer gaming and choose your own adventure books were all roughly at the same time in the same like 10 year period. And all became big fads. And I, I think we're sort of past it now. They they had their moment. And you can still do interesting stuff with them. But it, it was training wheels, you know, for the stuff we have now. And I think you can only enjoy them now with that veil of sort of nostalgia. All right. Well, I'm going to say I think I think there's still hope for the Choose Your Own Adventure book. I, I think it could make a resurgence. And I think the fact that the most uh, successful publishing Kickstarter of all time was for a choose-your-own-adventure-style book is evidence in favor of... But I also think one reason it did so well is everyone remembers choose-your-own-adventure. You know what I mean? Like, the, the ironic context, I think, is part of what made that so successful. I think people just thought this highbrow, lowbrow mashup was such a genius idea. You know, not, I've always thought Hamlet didn't have enough endings. <laughs> But, you know, you, you need at least one ending for the amount of bodies on the stage at the end. <laughs> Actually, yeah. I mean, I mean, Hamlet is the original Lord of the Rings trilogy with just too many goddamn endings. I mean, Fort and Bras come in. Like, what the hell, man? Yeah. Well, yeah, I always did think that was weird that you have what you think is the ending when everyone dies. And then, ta-da, here I am. I've invaded your country. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, now we're going we're gonna to make sure that we tell this story to everyone. And you just yeah. like, yeah, good luck with that, guys. <laughs> Fordenbrass gets such a bad rap. <laughs> like, that's the best part of the whole play. Oh, I it's agree. Just like, it's amazing. You know, it's like, your dad killed my dad. I'm coming to kill you. And when I get here, you're already dead because you're an idiot. Like, what? It's awesome. <laughs> I'm totally on Fortinbras's side. All right. So I think this conversation has run its course. Uh... <laughs> I'm sick of all of you. <laughs> Everyone out of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you Go on our Facebook page and post your opinion on Fort and Bras. We'd like to know. <laughs> to end the podcast, turn to page 94. <laughs> yeah, how do we want this podcast to end? That's a good point, yeah. I mean, I think you should have three different, you know, four endings where you get the last word, I get the last word, Kat gets the last word, Matt gets the last word, and one word just ends abruptly because we're all killed in an avalanche. Or it should cut off right there. That should just be the end of the entire podcast. <laughs> Implying that we all died in an hour. Yeah, or I could. Yeah, I could have. A, Thanks for explaining that, Matt. Grady, you know what? With you, sometimes I have to explain it. <laughs> yeah, or I could. I could have four different versions of the podcast. You know, 
just has a different yeah. ending. <laughs> One where it's just like cat talks the whole time, and it's like you just cut in other people going, oh, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. <laughs> so thanks, everyone, for joining us. So, jeez, uh, what do we have? Kat, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Grady, thanks for joining us. If I'm grateful for joining you, turn to page 112. If I'm not grateful to be here, turn to page 109. And Matt, thanks for being disowned by your family to join us. It's my 10th. It's uh, next time my 10th, so uh, we should have a party. Yeah. <laughs> And, of course, big thanks again to Ryan North for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Jim C., who writes, Whatever they say, I do. They talked about The Stars My Destination by Alfred Bester, so I read it. During the Paolo Bacigalupi interview, he mentioned that he learned to write fiction by reading The Weekend's Novelist by Robert Ray, so I bought a copy. During his interview, Steve Ely of Escape Pod mentioned an Asimov story that I had to hear called Nightfall, so I went ahead and listened to that. Matt Lenton mentioned his web animation called Space Pirates in Space, so I went and watched a few episodes of that. Felicia Day mentioned her The Guild web show, so I tuned into that as well. The point is, these guys introduced me to so much new and interesting stuff that not only do I never want to miss an episode, I am never bored by their podcast. It is always fresh and interesting. And then when they end a show with the reading of a David Barr Kirtley story, I listen with rapt attention. It's good. What else can I say? Listen to it. You'll soon love it as much as I do. So huge thanks, Jim, for that great review. We really appreciate it. And a special thank you to David Crozer for becoming subscriber number 58. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on subscribe. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.